Section 25 of Personal Memoirs of U.S. Grant. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Clevenger. Personal Memoirs of U.S. Grant by Ulysses S. Grant. Chapter 25. Struck by a Bullet precipitate retreat of the confederates entrenchments at shiloh general buell general johnston remarks on shiloh during this second day of the battle i had been moving from right to left and back to see for myself the progress made in the early part of the afternoon while riding with colonel mcpherson and major hawkins then my chief commissary we got beyond the left of our troops we were moving along the northern edge of a clearing very leisurely toward the river above the landing there did not appear to be an enemy to our right until suddenly a battery with musketry opened upon us from the edge of the woods on the other side of the clearing the shells and balls whistled about our ears very fast for about a minute. I do not think it took us longer than that to get out of range and out of sight. In the sudden start we made, Major Hawkins lost his hat. He did not stop to pick it up. When we arrived at a perfectly safe position, we halted to take an account of damages. McPherson's horse was panting as if ready to drop. On examination, it was found that a ball had struck him forward of the flank, just back of the saddle, and had gone entirely through. In a few minutes, the poor beast dropped dead. He had given no sign of injury until we came to a stop. A ball had struck the metal scabbard of my sword, just below the hilt, and broken it nearly off. Before the battle was over, it had broken off entirely. There were three of us. One had lost a horse, killed, one a hat, and one a sword scabbard. All were thankful that it was no worse. After the rain of the night before, and the frequent and heavy rains for some days previous, the roads were almost impassable. The enemy, carrying his artillery and supply trains over them in his retreat, made them still worse for troops following. I wanted to pursue, but had not the heart to order the men, who had fought desperately for two days, lying in the mud and rain whenever not fighting, and I did not feel disposed to positively order Buell or any part of his command to pursue. Although the senior in rank at the time, I had been so only a few weeks. Buell was, and had been for some time past, a department commander, while I commanded only a district. I did not meet Buell in person until too late to get troops ready and pursue with effect. But, had I seen him at the moment of the last charge, I should have at least requested him to follow. I rode forward several miles the day after the battle, and found that the enemy had dropped much, if not all, of their provisions, 
some ammunition, and the extra wheels of their caissons, lightening their loads to enable them to get off their guns. About five miles out, we found their field hospital abandoned. An immediate pursuit must have resulted in the capture of a considerable number of prisoners and probably some guns. Shiloh was the severest battle fought at the West during the war, and but few in the East equaled it for hard, determined fighting. I saw an open field in our possession on the second day, over which the Confederates had made repeated charges the day before, so covered with dead that it would have been possible to walk across the clearing in any direction stepping on dead bodies without a foot touching the ground on our side national and confederate troops were mingled together in about equal proportions but on the remainder of the field nearly all were confederates on one part which had evidently not been ploughed for several years, probably because the land was poor. Bushes had grown up, some to the height of eight or ten feet. There was not one of these left standing, unpierced by bullets. The smaller ones were all cut down. Contrary to all my experience up to that time, and to the experience of the army I was then commanding, we were on the defensive. We were without entrenchments or defensive advantages of any sort, and more than half the army engaged the first day was without experience or even drill as soldiers. The officers with them, except the division commanders and possibly two or three of the brigade commanders, were equally inexperienced in war. The result was a Union victory that gave the men who achieved it great confidence in themselves ever after. The enemy fought bravely, but they had started out to defeat and destroy an army and capture a position. They failed in both, with very heavy loss in killed and wounded, and must have gone back discouraged and convinced that the Yankee was not an enemy to be despised. After the battle, I gave verbal instructions to division commanders to let the regiments send out parties to bury their own dead, and to detail parties, under commissioned officers from each division, to bury the Confederate dead in their respective fronts, and to report the numbers so buried. The latter part of these instructions was not carried out by all but they were by those sent from Sherman's division and by some of the parties sent out by McClernand. The heaviest loss sustained by the enemy was in front of these two divisions. The criticism has often been made that the Union troops should have been entrenched at Shiloh. Up to that time the pick and spade had been but little resorted to at the West, I had, however, taken the subject under consideration soon after reassuming command in the field, and, as already stated, my only military engineer reported unfavorably. Besides this, the troops with me, officers and men, 
needed discipline and drill more than they did experience with the pick shovel and axe reinforcements were arriving almost daily composed of troops that had been hastily thrown together into companies and regiments fragments of incomplete organizations the men and officers strangers to each other under all these circumstances i concluded that drill and discipline were worth more to our men than fortifications general buell was a brave intelligent officer with as much professional pride and ambition of a commendable sort as i ever knew i had been two years at west point with him and had served with him afterwards in garrison and in the mexican war several years more he was not given in early life or in mature years to forming intimate acquaintances he was studious by habit and commanded the confidence and respect of all who knew him he was a strict disciplinarian and perhaps did not distinguish sufficiently between the volunteer who enlisted for the war and the soldier who serves in time of peace one system embraced men who risked life for a principle and often men of social standing competence or wealth and independence of character the other includes as a rule only men who could not do as well in any other occupation general buell became an object of harsh criticism later some going so far as to challenge his loyalty no one who knew him ever believed him capable of a dishonorable act and nothing could be more dishonorable than to accept high rank and command in war and then betrayed the trust when i came into command of the army in eighteen sixty four i requested the secretary of war to restore general buell to duty after the war during the summer of eighteen sixty five i traveled considerably through the north and was everywhere met by large numbers of people every one had his opinion about the manner in which the war had been conducted who among the generals had failed how and why correspondents of the press were ever on hand to hear every word dropped and were not always disposed to report correctly what did not confirm their preconceived notions either about the conduct of the war or the individuals concerned in it the opportunity frequently occurred for me to defend general buell against what i believed to be most unjust charges on one occasion a correspondence put in my mouth the very charge i had so often refuted of disloyalty this brought from general buell a very severe retort which i saw in the new york world some time before i received the letter itself i could very well understand his grievance at seeing untrue and disgraceful charges apparently sustained by an officer who at the time was at the head of the army i replied to him but not through the press i kept no copy of my letter nor did i ever see it in print neither did i receive an answer general albert sidney johnston 
who commanded the Confederate forces at the beginning of the battle, was disabled by a wound on the afternoon of the first day. This wound, as I understood afterwards, was not necessarily fatal or even dangerous, but he was a man who would not abandon what he deemed an important trust in the face of danger, and consequently continued in the saddle, commanding, until so exhausted by the loss of blood that he had to be taken from his horse and soon after died. The news was not long in reaching our side, and I suppose was quite an encouragement to the national soldiers. I had known Johnston slightly in the Mexican War, and later as an officer in the regular army. He was a man of high character and ability. His contemporaries at West Point, and officers generally who came to know him personally later, and who remained on our side, expected him to prove the most formidable man to meet that the Confederacy would produce. I once wrote that nothing occurred in his brief command of an army to prove or disprove the high estimate that had been placed upon his military ability. But after studying the orders and dispatches of Johnston, I am compelled to materially modify my views of that officer's qualifications as a soldier. My judgment now is that he was vacillating and undecided in his actions. All the disasters in Kentucky and Tennessee were so discouraging to the authorities in Richmond that Jefferson Davis wrote an unofficial letter to Johnston expressing his own anxiety and that of the public, and saying that he had made such defense as was dictated by long friendship, but that in the absence of a report he needed facts. The letter was not a reprimand in direct terms, but it was evidently as much felt as though it had been one. General Johnston raised another army as rapidly as he could, and fortified or strongly entrenched at Corinth. He knew the national troops were preparing to attack him in his chosen position, but he had evidently became so disturbed at the results of his operations that he resolved to strike out in an offensive campaign which would restore all that was lost, and if successful, accomplish still more. We have the authority of his son and biographer for saying that his plan was to attack the forces at Shiloh and crush them, then to cross the Tennessee and destroy the army of Buell, and push the war across the Ohio River. The design was a bold one, but we have the same authority for saying that in the execution, Johnston showed vacillation and indecision. He left Corinth on the 2nd of April, and was not ready to attack until the 6th. The distance his army had to march was less than 20 miles. Beauregard, his second in command, was opposed to the attack for two reasons. First, he thought if left alone, the national troops would attack the Confederates in their entrenchments. Second, we were in ground of our own choosing and would necessarily be entrenched. Johnston not only listened to the objection of Beauregard to an attack, but held a council of war on the subject on the morning of the 5th. 
on the evening of the same day he was in consultation with some of his generals on the same subject and still again on the morning of the sixth during this last consultation and before a decision had been reached the battle began by the national troops opening fire on the enemy this seemed to settle the question as to whether there was to be any battle of shiloh it also seems to me to settle the question as to whether there was a surprise i do not question the personal courage of general johnston or his ability but he did not win the distinction predicted for him by many of his friends he did prove that as a general he was overestimated general beauregard was next in rank to johnston and succeeded to the command which he retained to the close of the battle and during the subsequent retreat on corinth as well as in the siege of that place his tactics have been severely criticized by confederate writers but i do not believe his fallen chief could have done any better under the circumstances some of these critics claim that shiloh was won when johnston fell and that if he had not fallen the army under me would have been annihilated or captured ifs defeated the confederates at shiloh there is little doubt that we would have been disgracefully beaten if all the shells and bullets fired by us had passed harmlessly over the enemy and if all of theirs had taken effect commanding generals are liable to be killed during engagements and the fact that when he was shot johnston was leading a brigade to induce it to make a charge which had been repeatedly ordered is evidence that there was neither the universal demoralization on our side nor the unbounded confidence on theirs which has been claimed there was in fact no hour during the day when i doubted the eventual defeat of the enemy although i was disappointed that reinforcements so near at hand did not arrive at an earlier hour the description of the battle of shiloh given by colonel william preston johnston is very graphic and well told the reader will imagine that he can see each blow struck a demoralized and broken mob of union soldiers each blow sending the enemy more demoralized than ever towards the tennessee river which was a little more than two miles away at the beginning of the onset if the reader does not stop to inquire why with such confederate successes for more than twelve hours of hard fighting the national troops were not all killed captured or driven into the river he will regard the pen picture as perfect but i witnessed the fight from the national side from eight o'clock in the morning until night closed the contest i see but little in the description that i can recognize the confederate troops fought well and deserve commendation enough for their bravery and endurance on the sixth of april without detracting from their antagonists or claiming anything more than their just dues the reports of the enemy show 
that their condition at the end of the first day was deplorable their losses in killed and wounded had been very heavy and their stragglers had been quite as numerous as on the national side with the difference that those of the enemy left the field entirely and were not brought back to their respective commands for many days on the union side but few of the stragglers fell back further than the landing on the river and many of these were in line for duty on the second day the admissions of the highest confederate officers engaged at shiloh make the claim of a victory for them absurd the victory was not to either party until the battle was over it was then a union victory in which the armies of the tennessee and the ohio both participated but the army of the tennessee fought the entire rebel army on the sixth and held it at bay until near night and night alone closed the conflict and not the three regiments of nelson's division the confederates fought with courage at shiloh but the particular skill claimed i could not and still cannot see though there is nothing to criticize except the claims put forward for it since but the confederate claimants for superiority in strategy superiority in generalship and superiority in dash and prowess are not so unjust to the union troops engaged at shiloh as are many northern writers the troops on both sides were american and united they need not fear any foreign foe it is possible that the southern man started in with a little more dash than his northern brother but he was correspondingly less enduring the endeavor of the enemy on the first day was simply to hurl their men against ours first at one point then at another sometimes at several points at once this they did with daring and energy until at night the rebel troops were worn out our effort during the same time was to be prepared to resist assaults wherever made the object of the confederates on the second day was to get away with as much of their army and material as possible ours then was to drive them from our front and to capture or destroy as great a part as possible of their men and material we were successful in driving them back but not so successful in captures as if further pursuit could have been made as it was we captured or recaptured on the second day about as much artillery as we lost on the first and leaving out the one great capture of prentice we took more prisoners on monday than the enemy gained from us on sunday on the sixth sherman lost seven pieces of artillery mcclernand six prentice eight and hurlbut two batteries on the seventh sherman captured seven guns mcclernand three and the army of the ohio twenty at shiloh the effective strength of the union forces on the morning of the sixth was thirty three thousand men lew wallace brought five thousand more after nightfall beauregard reported the enemy's strength at forty thousand nine hundred and fifty five 
according to the custom of enumeration in the south this number probably excluded every man enlisted as musician or detailed as guard or nurse and all commissioned officers everybody who did not carry a musket or serve a cannon with us everybody in the field receiving pay from the government is counted excluding the troops who fled panic-stricken before they had fired a shot there was not a time during the sixth when we had more than twenty-five thousand men in line on the seventh buell brought twenty thousand more of his remaining two divisions thomas's did not reach the field during the engagement woods arrived before firing had ceased but not in time to be of much service our loss in the two days fight was one thousand seven hundred fifty four killed eight thousand four hundred eight wounded and two thousand eight hundred eighty five missing of these two thousand one hundred three were in the army of the ohio beauregard reported a total loss of ten thousand six hundred ninety nine of whom one thousand seven hundred twenty eight were killed eight thousand twelve wounded and nine hundred and fifty seven missing this estimate must be incorrect we buried by actual count more of the enemy's dead in front of the divisions of mcclernand and sherman alone than here reported and four thousand was the estimate of the burial parties of the whole field beauregard reports the confederate force on the sixth at over forty thousand and their total loss during the two days at ten thousand six hundred ninety nine and at the same time declares that he could put only twenty thousand men in battle on the morning of the seventh the navy gave a hearty support to the army at shiloh as indeed it always did both before and subsequently when i was in command the nature of the ground was such however that on this occasion it could do nothing in aid of the troops until sundown on the first day the country was broken and heavily timbered cutting off all view of the battle from the river so that friends would be as much in danger from fire from the gunboats as the foe but about sundown when the national troops were back in their last position the right of the enemy was near the river and exposed to the fire of the two gunboats which was delivered with vigor and effect after nightfall when firing had entirely ceased on land the commander of the fleet informed himself approximately of the position of our troops and suggested the idea of dropping a shell within the lines of the enemy every fifteen minutes during the night this was done with effect as is proved by the confederate reports up to the battle of shiloh i as well as thousands of other citizens believed that the rebellion against the government would collapse suddenly and soon if a decisive victory could be gained over any of its armies donelson and henry were such victories an army of more than twenty one thousand men was captured or destroyed bowling green columbus and hickman kentucky fell in consequence and clarksville and nashville tennessee 
the last two with an immense amount of stores also fell into our hands the tennessee and cumberland rivers from their mouths to the head of navigation were secured but when confederate armies were collected which not only attempted to hold a line further south from memphis to chattanooga knoxville and on to the atlantic but assumed the offensive and made such a gallant effort to regain what had been lost then indeed i gave up all idea of saving the union except by complete conquest up to that time it had been the policy of our army certainly of that portion commanded by me to protect the property of the citizens whose territory was invaded without regard to their sentiments whether union or secession after this however i regarded it as humane to both sides to protect the persons of those found at their homes but to consume everything that could be used to support or supply armies protection was still continued over such supplies as were within lines held by us and which we expected to continue to hold but such supplies within the reach of confederate armies i regarded as much contraband as arms or ordnance stores their destruction was accomplished without bloodshed and tended to the same result as the destruction of armies i continued this policy to the close of the war promiscuous pillage however was discouraged and punished instructions were always given to take provisions and forage under the direction of commissioned officers who should give receipts to owners if at home and turn the property over to officers of the quartermaster or commissary departments to be issued as if furnished from our northern depots but much was destroyed without receipts to owners when it could not be brought within our lines and would otherwise have gone to the support of secession and rebellion this policy i believe exercised a material influence in hastening the end the battle of shiloh or pittsburgh landing has been perhaps less understood or to state the case more accurately more persistently misunderstood than any other engagement between national and confederate troops during the entire rebellion correct reports of the battle have been published notably by sherman badeau and in a speech before a meeting of veterans by general prentice but all of these appeared long subsequent to the close of the rebellion and after public opinion had been most erroneously formed i myself made no report to general halleck further than was contained in a letter written immediately after the battle informing him that an engagement had been fought and announcing the result a few days afterwards general halleck moved his headquarters to pittsburgh landing and assumed command of the troops in the field although next to him in rank and nominally in command of my old district and army i was ignored as much as if i had been at the most distant point of territory within my jurisdiction and although i was in command of all the troops engaged at shiloh 
I was not permitted to see one of the reports of General Buell or his subordinates in that battle until they were published by the War Department long after the event. For this reason, I never made a full official report of this engagement. End of section 25. Recording by Jim Clevenger, Little Rock, Arkansas. Jim at jocclev.com.